Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a report this week from the Sundance Film Festival. Critic Stephen Garrett went to Park City, and he will be here to talk to me about the movies he saw and the logistical problems he encountered there. We're also going to talk about uh, You Are What You Eat, which is a Netflix documentary series about vegan diets and about uh, processed vegan food companies. Contributor Rachel Llewellyn will be here, and she has some very interesting observations about the show. But first, we're going to talk about the Barbie Oscar controversy with critic Sarah Stewart, who has some thoughts about the snubs of Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig in their respective categories, and Sarah and I will have a debate about the snub, the Barbie Oscar controversy, right after this musical interlude. The Oscar nominations came out last week, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the Oscars, and we're going to sort of handicap them in a future episode of the show, but they made a lot of news this week, mostly uh, surrounding uh, the film Barbie, which got eight nominations, but... It wasn't enough for some lovers of Barbie, and there were some uh, omissions to uh, to the nominations that really uh, annoyed some people, and then the annoyance annoyed some people. It, it went kind of the discourse went kind of crazy. Uh, our critic Sarah Stewart wrote for a publication with a much smaller circulation, CNN.com. She wrote a piece um, about uh, why uh, why she thought uh, that uh, Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig got snubbed for for their um, main categories, and she's here today to talk to me about the Barbie nomination fiasco, let us say. Sarah, hello. 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 So, yeah, so you were, like, right through the gate. You were one of the first uh, critics to say that Greta Gerwig, in, in particular, was robbed of her Best Director nomination. Yes, I was struck by that, uh, you know, as soon as the nominations came out. I was, I was pretty shocked by that. Um, I know that I've maybe a little bit naively just believed in the power of Barbie because I, I enjoyed it so much, but that just seemed, um, it seemed egregious to me in a, in a way in, in as part of a pattern that I've just been observing as somebody who's been writing about and watching the Oscars for, you know, as long as I've been an adult, basically. The pattern of uh, basically ignoring female directors in favor of male directors or female, because you can't say they ignore female actors because there's whole categories devoted to female actors. Right. So, yes, the pattern is ignoring female directors um, and sort of more broadly than that, um, just the sort of emphasis on a very particular type of film as what is considered Oscar worthy. And I think in a lot of ways, yeah. Barbie is just sort of the antithesis of that. And I get that, but um, it just felt, you know, knowing the statistics about the women directors, um, it, it felt pretty uh, overt, this, this snub of Greta Gerwig. And, um, you know, if I may, uh, you know, I, I looked up a couple of these numbers while I was writing for CNN, you know, the first woman director was not nominated uh, until I think, 48 years into the ceremony's uh, history. Mm. And there have only been... And, and who and who was that? Was that uh, Jane Campion? No, it wasn't. Jane Campion was the second. The first one was, I want to say, Lena Wertmuller. Is that, am I saying that right? I think it was. And then it was 20 years after that that Jane Campion was nominated. And, and in the meantime, zero. And then to this day, there are eight women ever nominated as directors. 
Right, and that may have that may have made sense in the 1940s when there were just weren't a lot of female directors yeah. allowed given the shot. But I, I, in this day and age, when there are plenty of great films being made uh, by women, um, both sort of mainstream and and indie, it, it's that that number. Honestly, when I read that number, it was it was surprisingly low. Yeah, it's surprisingly low. There was a, a, a female director nominated this year, Justine uh, Triet. Uh, for Anatomy of a Fall, yes. uh, which is an excellent film, which we've talked about on the show before, and I would say that, and and very very well directed as well. Absolutely, and I I in no way want to detract from uh, the you know righteousness of her nomination, but I do sure. think that it is not super hyperbolic to say maybe they felt that one female director in this category was enough. You know, we don't want to we don't want to over ask for, you know, two women to be in the category, which has literally never happened. It will. I would say, I'm going to say it will happen. Oh, it will. Yeah. There's just more and more women directing movies. So it's just by, it's a a numbers game. But the thing is like, the thing that that really drives me crazy about the discourse is uh, the the backlash to pieces like mine pointing out the snub saying, calm, everybody just take a deep breath about the Barbie controversy, which to me, you know, to my like, yes, somewhat reactionary feminist ears is, you know, ladies, calm down. Mm. It wasn't just ladies, though. There are plenty of ally men who are also like yes, like yes. Shri- shrieking <laughs> on Twitter. I, I get the shrieking, but, you know, but to say calm down in an instance where you have eight women ever nominated over 96 years of a ceremony seems misplaced at best. Although I think that's a separate issue than Barbie itself. Let, let me be... If not the if, if devil's advocate, if not the devil himself, Barbie did get <laughs> Barbie did get eight Oscar nominations. It got uh, it got an acting nomination for America Ferrara. Greta Gerwig herself got a nomination with Noah Baumbach for the screenplay adapted screenplay. I guess it was adapted from a toy with box. With her husband, yeah. Well, okay, yeah, they wrote it together. Right. What are you going to do? Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah. um, and then Margot Robbie, who was quote unquote snubbed for best actress. Uh, is nominated as a producer because Barbie itself was nominated for Best Picture. And I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. If I had told you a year ago today, if you and I had been talking and I said, you know, Sarah, I think Barbie is going to get eight nominations for the Oscars, including two acting nominations and Best Picture and Best Screenplay, I, maybe you wouldn't have said I was crazy, but most people, I think, would have said I was crazy. <laughs> I would have said, yeah, that's right. That's what I predict. I actually did predict. I, well, I predicted Barbie for Best Picture in the CNN Crystal Ball poll that they do every year. But after you'd seen it, after you'd seen it, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. After. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I mean, I'm talking like a year ago, and and you know before even Barbie was like before even the trailer came out. If I said you know Barbie's gonna be a right. make a billion, it's gonna make a billion dollars. Uh, it's gonna be an iconic all time historical film that's going to get eight Oscar nominations. I think even you would have said I was nuts. <laughs> That's true. And Barbie, but that was the beauty of Barbie was that it, it proceeded to kind of upend everybody's expectations of what it was going to be. Except if you yeah. were like really in the tank for Greta Gerwig, as I am, and sort of knowing where she generally comes from and knowing what her take on American girlhood is and, and being pretty confident that she was going to deliver something that wasn't just a piece of trash. Sure, but not a multi-Oscar nominated film. You know, I mean, that's just a that's a that's a lot uh, to ask of of a Barbie movie. So I don't know. Like, uh, Greta Gerwig, like she, I think she she's made three movies. No, she has she directed three movies, right? She has a uh, yeah, Lady Bird, Little Women, and this. Um, she may have directed something before that, but, but she I- got Oscar. She got nominations for 
both Lady Bird no. and Little Women? No. I don't no? think she was nominated I- for Little Women, no. Okay, well... Regardless, I I don't feel real sorry for Greta Gerwig. You know, she's 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 li- and she's literally been handed the keys of a of, of the Narnia franchise. You know, major piece of intellectual property. I think she's she's gonna be okay. What I saw someone um uh on Twitter saying, "Well, you all are arguing about this. Greta is at home uh, writing Narnia and eating chips on the couch. You know, it's like it's not a tragedy. Totally. But I invite you to consider. I invite you to consider like if if the highest selling the highest grossing movie of the year that was I'm not going to say uniformly loved, but like loved by a great many people. Yeah. Had had a man as a star and a man as a director. I defy you to imagine a world in which those two people aren't nominated. I just don't think it would happen. It certainly happens where there are some years where the universal, the number one box office picture is just like some piece of, um, you know, science fiction or superhero IP. Well, for Black Panther, we had a nomination for Chadwick Boseman, and we also had a nomination for uh, a director's name is escaping me. Uh, Ryan Coogler. Yeah, Ryan Coogler. I don't know. It's like, I, I get it. I mean, I think your point about not there not being a lot of uh, enough female director nominees over the years is very well taken. I just wonder if, like, if this is maybe not the tragedy that it's being cracked up to be. I mean, listen, no, is it a tragedy? No. And like, was I, you know, invited to write this opinion by CNN? Yes. <laughs> right. So of course you're going to like, sure. you're going to, you know, gin it up as, as far as you can. Oh, I would have published it. I would have published it too. I mean, it was a good piece. <laughs> There's no question, you know, and, 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 you know, compared to like, there was a piece in the LA times where the critic was, was like being real nasty about like Lily Gladstone mm. getting nominated and Sandra Huller getting nominated mm. and just talking, you know, talking all kinds of trash about, you know, these, these performances that, you know, we're involved in sort of more traditional dramatic roles um, in in favor of Margot Robbie. And, you know, that that got a lot of, you know, that got a lot of heat where your piece didn't because your piece was rationally argued. Um, And I I will say this before before we go. The uh, I think that the discourse really bottomed out with the Hillary Clinton tweet. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Hillary. Hashtag Hillary Barbie. She 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 pops in and she's like, it's okay, Greta and Margot, you'll bounce back. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure they're I'm sure they're grateful for your support. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she's hurting more than helping there, probably. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like yeah, that that yeah. that that's how that's how ridiculous the uh, the discourse got re- really quickly. It, it turned it turned very Ruth Conda forever very fast. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, listen, it's, it's, you know, it's the job of, you know, people like us to, you know, make a bigger deal about these things than is probably warranted. Although I, do, I also want to point out, like, there's this weird thing about snubs is like pro and con with, you know, don't say snubs, we shouldn't be using the word snubs, but you know, isn't a reflection on it. But you know what? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Snub is what allows the average American viewer to understand sort of what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, who isn't, isn't nominated. I will defend the use of the word snub in the media just to shorthand it for people who aren't obsessed with entertainment and aren't reading absolutely everything. Well, this is the first year that the, you know, every year there's a snub debate, but usually it's like, you know, so-and-so from such-and-such movie that no one saw should have been nominated but wasn't. And whereas this year it was like, you know, the most popular movie of the year. So like there were, what are they? I don't want to call them normies, but like regular movie viewers, like were suddenly outraged on behalf of their favorite uh, cultural product. So I think that's so. So this is the year that the snub went went really mainstream. Yes, I will say, it, and I'm, this is something I didn't put in my piece, but um, Celine Song, uh, the director of Past Lives, also would have been a uh, 
pretty great female nominee in that in that category as well. And I think we could have probably done without Scorsese. Like I think I think that might have been all right to leave him off this year. I don't think we need to give him one every time. Right, because he's not going to win. So it's like he's not going to win. I mean, I know we all love him. Yes, he's great. Maybe, 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 maybe that's the one. Also, let's not forget Elizabeth Banks, who made Cocaine Bear. Cocaine Bear really surprised me. That is a, should have been a dark horse. Talk about a snub. All right. Uh, Sarah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the bear didn't even get any nominations. God damn it. Where's the justice? I know, I know. All right. Well, Sarah Stewart, thank you so much for uh, for standing up for uh, for female female directors. I mean, it's it you make you make a good point, and there there's going to come a year where it's not just going to be two; it's going to be three. They're it's going to be oh, like oh, I don't know. We don't want our reach, Neil. Three in our lifetime, directors. in in our, in our lifetime, in our lifetime, Maybe. there will be there will be a majority. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> we'll talk to you uh, when we do our Oscar preview in a week or two. Great. Stephen Garrett is back from the Sundance Film Festival. Made his annual winter trip to, to Utah. Did you did you put on your <laughs> did you put on your earmuffs and your mucklucks? I put on my puffer and uh, my boots, and I stumbled through the snowy uh, mountains to see movies in bad bad venues. The the movies were not technically it's in Park City, not in the it's in a town maybe near the mountains. That's true. Um, the movie the movies are actually not projected onto mountains. That might <laughs> that might be a new thing. Maybe next year. Maybe next year, Maybe. a movie project, uh, like and, and like Super IMAX. <laughs> <laughs> Huge print. Yeah, boy. So, so you had a, um, but we'll talk about the movies at Sundance in a second. But you had, uh, you had some complaints about the bus system. I was like, you sound, <laughs> you sounded like, you sounded like someone complaining, like an old guy complaining that they changed the your your blue plate special <laughs> at your favorite restaurant. I was a grumpy old man about the buses. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So uh, I think that the uh, the takeaway is I think Sundance is belt tightening a little bit. You know, it's mm-hmm. still recovering from those two pandemic years where it was online. It was the only festival that went online two years consecutively. All the others yeah. really struggled very quickly to get up on their feet and in person as quickly as possible because they knew that you you lose momentum and then it starts the wheels start to fall off a little bit. You know? So Sundance is still trying to put the wheels back on. I think they are a little bit. I think um, online was successful in that it brought in more people, but it didn't bring in the kind of revenue that they're used to with people in person. Now, I feel like they have the best of both worlds. There was not one screening that I went to that wasn't packed. You know, certainly public screenings were completely lines out the door, uh, very enthusiastic. People on the ground in person were there for it and loved it. It just felt like old times. Uh, at the same time, you know, they cut back on the number of movies that they program, you know, from 115 to 80, apparently. Uh, they Some of the venues that they've had for decades, uh, one being in a hotel that used to be called the Yarrow, now it's the Doubletree by Marriott or whatever, whoever does Doubletree. But they're not even using that venue uh, the way that they used to. There's another venue called The Mark, which they are not using either. It saves them money. And the bus thing <laughs> was one of those more obvious glaring things because you need... There's there's no easy way to get around Sundance. It's an awful place for a festival to happen because venues are scattered. They're they're just and you need to take these buses and the buses used to come reliably every ten minutes and you get in a panic if you don't get there early enough. And I you know like there was times where I waited twenty minutes. There were times where I just gave up and walked. This sounds like an average day for me when I lived in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine that, but a film festival that's supposedly world class. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like. 
seems a little a little odd. Also, it's their 40th anniversary. You think they'd have some big splashy trailer that they'd show in front of each of the movies that celebrates it. In fact, the Sundance Institute trailer that they showed was the same one they used last year. They didn't update it. Save some money. And in, for their 40th anniversary, they had a slideshow of black and white photos through the years. You know? <laughs> and did you have to pay for your own snacks, Stephen? I sometimes had to pay for my own snacks, mm, yes. Yeah. These are terrible things. These are all terrible things. It's good. It's good observations. Though. It's it's good observations from a seasoned festival going pro. So beyond all that, there were still eighty movies, and you saw probably seventy eight of them. I think I, I did what I could. I think I saw about thirty by the That's time I left. I have another. I have another ten that I'm going to catch up with online. Which is where the online thing is actually very good because you can catch up. You you know. I, you know, despite all the hassles, it, you can still see more movies now than you used to before the online thing. So it's I think they're still kind of ironing it out. 30 movies is more than a lot of people see in a decade. Stephen. That's so that's fair. You know, I mean, <laughs> fair. That's, that's pretty good. Let's talk about two or three to five of those 30. What, what was notable? Well, I would say, OK, so uh, Sundance is divided into premieres section, you know, which has the big splashy movies with um, big movie stars. And then there's the dramatic competition, which is a competition. The premieres are not a competition. So if you want to win a prize, you have to be in dramatic competition. They have one for narrative. They have one for documentary. Uh, let's start there because uh, the awards are coming out uh, next uh, tomorrow. And I feel like a, a as, as we're as we're talking, as, they've already come out oh, as I'm you're sorry, listening. Yes. They, exactly. And one that I think will get a lot of recognition is a movie called A uh, a real pain, and that pun is in, that double meaning is intended because it's a comedy drama about uh, written and directed by Jesse Eisenberg, who also stars in it with Kieran Culkin. They play cousins who were born three weeks apart, so they're kind of like brothers, kind of brothers, but not really because they're kind of estranged and they both took different paths in life. So uh, Jesse Eisenberg is the uptight. Um, you know, a uh, successful uh, cousin who lives in Brooklyn with a wife and kid, and he sells ad, you know, ad banners on websites, and he's quote unquote the sellout. And his uh, cousin Kieran Culkin is kind of like is a stoner and doesn't have a job and doesn't have his life together. You know what I mean? But he is incredibly gregarious and charming. And the two of them go on, and they both love their grandmother. And in tribute to her, they go on this trip, which is kind of like a Holocaust tour, for lack of a better phrase they even joke about it in the um in the movie but they go to poland where there is there are tours where you can go around and see the the landmarks and the you know places like concentration camps and stuff like that so yeah the zones of interest the zones of interest there, there are a lot of zones of interest and i reading the description thought oh i i can probably skip this you know it's just not for me this seems like it's going to be overwrought and it's going to be overthought and it was magnificent it's, it's just a really great film about um, growing up and the pressures you might feel from family or not um, being close to somebody, but also being distant from them. And, you know, it, it really is a, a much more universal sort of look at humanity and family and, you know, the commitments you put on yourself and the expirations you have for your own life and maybe they're not fulfilled. And I don't know, it just, it was such a rich film. And um, thankfully I was able to see it after, you know, a day or two of hearing buzz about it after not wanting to after not wanting to i begrudgingly <laughs> did and i was absolutely so happy as soon as i did and it's so fun and funny in ways that you know, i was not expecting and then completely heartbreaking in ways as well kieran culkin is the absolute secret sauce in this movie he is amazing and he shows such a range 
Uh, one would even say he's bipolar in this movie. He's such a range of. He's uh, our greatest. He, he's our greatest living actor. Here he, uh, he may just be after this film. You know, Mark. Surprise, Mudder, surprise. You'll be eating your. Who hat. thought of it? Who knew? All right. So that's a real pain. That sounds good. Um, I'm glad you were able to overcome your um, ingrained anti-Semitism to enjoy it. Um, <laughs> all right. So what? So yeah. so we got um, we got room for two, three more movies here. So let's. I, I would say the other ones that are going to get kind of attention, Love Lies Bleeding is the new kind of lesploitation movie about um, two women on the lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's directed by um, Rose Glass, who uh, did a movie called St. Maud that got a lot of buzz because um, it's about religious fundamentalism and the filmmaking is really extraordinary. And this, the filmmaking in this is pretty great too, but it's, it's really, it's such a grindhouse movie that it doesn't take itself too seriously and it wants you uh, to kind of laugh along with it. And it's uh, Kristen Stewart. Her co-star is this bodybuilder named Katie O'Brien. It's this female bodybuilder who's just insanely jacked up. And like the, the, the kind of premise is that she's training for a bodybuilding competition. It's all set in the uh, 80s. Um, and she's uh, training for a bodybuilding competition in Vegas. I think this is set in New Mexico. And um, Kristen Stewart works at a gym. She's a gym manager. That's how they meet. And they fall in love and they have hot and heavy sex. And then uh, there's some complications ensue because uh, Kristen Stewart's dad, played by Ed Harris, with like a long, crazy long hair uh, and is like obsessed with bugs. It's the weirdest, hilarious, gross role. He's an asshole and a psychopath and a gun runner and a murderer. And um, so things get tangled from there. Uh, But it's a hilarious, a lot of fun. And A24 has it. Surprise, surprise. And it's coming out in the summer. So people will see that. Yeah, we'll be able to see it. I've I've seen trailers for it already. So that sounds that, yeah, that look does look and sound good. I will agree there. So um Freaky Tales. Freaky Tales is great. Uh Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, whose last movie uh was uh, Captain Marvel of all things, like a yeah. big studio uh comic book movie. Before that they well, their big breakthrough was Half Nelson with Ryan Gosling. They made a movie. And they called, did a baseball movie called Sugar, which was quite good. Which is quite good, right? Uh, yeah, and yeah. also mostly Spanish language, too. I mean, it was really – these guys are great. And this was a total – this is another kind of grindhouse-type movie. It's a, this totally weird – it was almost like a Bay Area – also set in the 80s. It's a Bay Area a pulp fiction, basically. It's four interwoven stories – uh, one more progressively absurd and crazy than the other. Uh, it's got skinheads and punks. It's got, uh, you know, uh, baseball players uh, with samurai swords. It's got Pedro Pascal as a hitman. It has a cameo from Tom Hanks. I mean, it's got everything. It sounds great. It's, uh, it's ridiculous and great and funny, and it changes aspect ratios. It's very, like, you see, even see the changeover reel cues in the corner, so it's like a real tribute to, like, you know, 80s. There's a lot of video stuff. There's, you know, like cheesy video. Um, like 80s video store aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. And then this weird alien subplot or weird theme that involves green goo or green lights shining out of people's eyes. Oh, there's also a rap battle with like a salt and pepper type uh, crew. It's it's a hilarious movie and it's a complete mess in a lot of ways, but it's also so heartfelt like Ryan Bowden, uh, sorry, Ryan Fleck uh, came from the Bay Area. Ann Bowden, I think, is from Massachusetts. So it's, it's very much his kind of sense memory of, you know, that Bay Area scene in the 80s. It's great. All right. All right. Cool. That sounds good. All right. Well, we got room for one more. What else, what, 
What do you pick? What do I pick? We haven't talked about documentaries. There, you know, um, I, I will say uh, two real fast. Um, yeah. Lightning round. Devo. Uh, Chris Smith made a documentary on Devo, which is uh, amazingly fun. So fun. It's a tight ninety minutes, and it's a highlight of this. You know, the the seminal post punk pre new wave proto new wave band uh, who whipped it good. And they were there, and they put out the the crazy those hats, the red hats. Yeah, I got one of those for ha- ha- well, for Halloween. Oh, nice! Uh, there was a Halloween show in 2021 in Austin, and they were still at that point um, asking people to um, like wear like protective gear and show your freaking vax card or whatever. So I got uh, my <laughs> Halloween costume was I got a Devo helmet with a face shield. Nice, nice. <laughs> Classy. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, you're going to love this movie, I'm sure. It's going to be catnip for you and, frankly, anybody who kind of came of age when they were around because it's just amazing. The, the archival footage is great and the insights into their de-evolution ideas about, you know, and the way it informed their art and their music was hilarious. But that feeds into, because they worked briefly with Brian Eno on their first album, there's a documentary on Brian Eno called Eno, which oh, is nice. fantastic yeah. and really wonderful, but also hilarious because Eno didn't want to do a, a documentary on himself. He wouldn't allow it unless there was something really special about it and it kind of mirrored his aesthetic and his idea about creativity and music. And so yeah. this movie regenerates every time it's shown. Uh, there's never, you never see the same movie twice, apparently, although you have to make hmm. a DCP every time you do it. Um, there are like something like 51 quintillion possible different versions of this. So there's, there's using AI generated, uh, media. Um, there is no one single version of this movie. There are certain scenes that may be in every version, but they might be slightly different. The B roll is different. The archival footage is different. We had I had conversations with people saying, oh, do you remember that scene? And they were like, no, 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 but do you remember this moment? And I was like, I, it wasn't in the version I saw. So wow. I think Eno is very conscientiously kind of thrilled with the idea of an ambient-type documentary about his life. Yeah. Um, and he's such a charming guy, and he's so smart and articulate about the creativity, uh, about his creative process and about creativity in general. Um, you know, he was kind of like, uh, who's that guy, Rick Rubin, who put out that creativity book right. earlier last year? Yeah. Um, it's that kind of vibe and it's, it's delightful again for anybody who's kind of grown up and loved music and alt music uh, and ambient music from the seventies to now. Um, so that was remarkable. It was great. Fun, tough. Sounds like a rich semi given the bus situation, a semi movable feast. (laughs) Aside from the goddamn buses. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you are as always a hero for braving these, uh, these difficult, uh, situations, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing the, the, the suffering. I nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows, but Sundance. All right. Stephen Garrett. I, su- I suffer for our viewers and readers. Exactly. Listeners rather. Ain't that the truth. All right. Stephen Garrett went to Sundance. He has reported on it for us here today. We'll talk to you soon. The quality of our food, it's changing in front of us rapidly. We're as sure processed meat causes cancer as we are that cigarette smoke causes cancer and plutonium causes cancer. You can't trust these labels. If they got about this much room, then that's free range. Every time you eat a steak, a little puff of smoke goes up in the Amazon. Many of the same things that promote human health are also good for the environment. If you ask any human being, do you want to save the planet or destroy the planet? I mean, come on, it's a no-brainer, right? We can solve a lot of the issues that are hurting us by just rethinking what's at the end of our fork. Like a lot of you, I started the new year wanting to 
lose some weight, not get in shape because I'm in such amazing shape, but lose a little weight. And I've done, I've done pretty well so far. I've lost five or six pounds this year, mostly by eating popcorn. Sometimes movie theater popcorn, sometimes popcorn I make at home, but pretty much an 80% all popcorn diet. But I recognize that there are other non-film critic approaches to health and weight loss. And there's a new documentary on Netflix called You Are What You Eat that is generating a lot of attention and some controversy. And Rachel Llewellyn wrote about it for us on Book and Film Globe at great length and with great criticism. It's a great piece. And she is here today to talk to me about You Are What You Eat. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So, yeah, so this is a show about dietary approaches and and it's based on some like a twin study where they had sets of twins eat different kinds of foods is that right that's right yes they split up the twins went into a vegan diet and went omnivore for two months just to kind of see how you know their cardiometabolic results would be different if at all in such a short time window and they had some really interesting results but it really wasn't the centerpiece of the documentary as my article kind of delves into. Um, it's more just kind of a jumping off place for some more overt messaging, I think. And, you know, obviously you watch a documentary and it's, you know, you it's for entertainment. It's not a research paper. So, you know, it's not the most accurate medium always to absorb scientific information, but it had such an amazing reception that it kind of, it begged investigation. So I kind of fell down a rabbit hole with it, to be honest. Right. So the show, you know, because of the twin study, it it kind of like, it, you know, has the the pacing and the, the tone of like one of those shows like where, um, you know, little people fall in love. You know what I mean? Like like a little, <laughs> a little bit of quirk. <laughs> yes. Very quirky. You know, the pizzicato violin music in the background real yeah yes it was very well produced for sure and a very watchable as i mentioned right so but you know what what you talk about in your article is that it's yes it's a vegan versus an omnivore diet but there are vegan diets and then there are vegan diets like my wife and i eat these days largely vegetables mostly vegetables you know i mean i i do we do have some protein and then we have the occasional splurge night here and there but that's, that's not what they're talking about in this uh, documentary because there's a lot of processed foods, ultra-processed foods that are also vegan. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's the point. It's, it's, a, it's a category error uh, throughout in that they say that, you know, veganism is categorically healthier as opposed to, you know, putting that in opposition to meat consumption. And I think that is really a category error because, like you mentioned, there's vegan diets and, and vegan diets. And there are a lot of studies that have been done. And I, I reference a documentary, The Blue Zones, where they kind of cut that up by, you know, uh, maybe not nationality, but cultural group. And if you kind of use that same logic, we've got a wonderful uh, sample group in India, uh, for example. They're they're 38 to 44% vegetarian, uh, with 80% of them reporting at least some meat restrictions. For example, Muslims limit pork, you know, so so there's a lot of that in India, but they rank as one of the unhealthiest countries. So if you want a scientific sample size, you know, it's, it's an interesting data point. I mean, Indian food, a lot of it is fried. There's a ton of butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the saturated fat, the sugar, the the packaged food is they eat more packaged food than fruits and vegetables. And Indian packaged foods, by the way, are rated as the, the worst globally just because of all the, you know, stuff in it. So I think, again, the issue isn't really uh, – 
whether it's plants or animals, but uh, how are they produced and processed? And I see a lot of similarities in the in veganism to the meat industry. You know, I mentioned that towards the end of my article in terms of just processing, being really technology dependent and mass produced, using a lot of artificial stuff for for producing and processing that stuff. So. I see that as kind of a, a category error. Yeah, blue zones is a is, is an interesting uh, case study because we we have a, a our occasional blues that we have some blue zone cookbooks sitting around the house, you know, and it's a mix of food. Some of it is <laughs> is Central American, some of it is like from Okinawa. There are these uh, there's mm-hmm. this weird sort of religious sect in California, you know. And some of the food, I mean, I never feel like crap after I eat a blue zone meal, but <laughs> I often I often don't feel full. <laughs> I'm all, I'm like, I'm like, well, that was some rice and peanuts. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, as the, as you are, what you eat pointed out their their caloric average was 200 calories per, per meal, you know, not not per day. Oh, I'm sorry. 200 fewer calories per day. Um, so right. 200 calories, 200 calories a day is like what a bird eats. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. No, the difference in the omnivore versus vegan, obviously. But there are a lot of, uh, you know, communities like they mentioned Icelandic that are blue zones um, and they consume a ton of meat. I mean, Norway, including Finland, yeah, (laughs) whales, seals, all those really super fatty, too. And, uh, you know, Finland, uh, they I mean, they eat a ton of meat and they're, uh, you know, among the healthiest. So. You know, I think that the the documentary obviously, you know, was agenda driven, which is that's nothing unusual. It's, it wasn't like an expose. You know, we all knew that. But I kind of wanted to break it down a little bit. Um, and I think that a lot of opportunities were kind of missed uh, to find common ground. You know, and I think a lot of dietitians would agree with me that just moderation and making your food as granular and local as, you know, is economically or logistically feasible for you. Limiting stuff we know is bad. Like, you know, alcohol, sodium, sugar, refined, processed, all that packaged crap. And that that encompasses as a category overlap to plant-based and animal products. So I just thought the documentary rendered it so interestingly. It was super smooth. I mean, everyone was talking about it. Did you hear a lot of uh, chatter about it? Um, well, I heard a lot of chatter about it in my house because my wife watched it while I was at the poker, <laughs> the poker room. She texts me. I'm in the middle of a poker tournament. She texts me. She's like, we're not eating farm salmon anymore. I'm like... <laughs> Okay, li- li- listen, I got, I, I'm That's facing awesome. it all in here, babe. Give me a few minutes to make a decision here. I support that for sure. They made some wonderful points, like farm salmon is, you know, atrocious. And there are a lot of unifying moments, you know, where, where either side finds some common ground. You know, you got that, that ex-chicken farmer, you know, he partnered up with... Um, I don't recall the exact group, but um, an activist group to repurpose, you know, he turned his barn into a uh, mushroom growing operation, which is actually really profitable. I, I did some uh, research on it and I guess a lot of independent meat and dairy producers uh, are doing that. So, so, so really the documentary is funded by big mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's surprisingly lucrative. You'd be surprised like per pound, like it's comparable to poultry. So, uh, but it's, 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 it's mostly water because it's mostly water. Yeah. So. <laughs> Exactly. But I feel like the documentary really didn't address some interesting points, you know, like the quality of a healthcare system, um, you know, obstacles to animal husbandry, a significant 
other factors like alcohol and tobacco consumption, which are huge mortality factors. So um, it's just, you kind of have to kind of watch these with a bit of a critical eye. And again, you know, don't take it as, you know, an academic journal. And there's a lot of kind of advertising for like impossible foods or beyond meat or whatever in the in the piece. And I, I have, you know, especially when they first appeared, I, I, I had my uh, my flirtations with impossible foods. We still have some old, I love their, the, the ones you can get at Costco, get a big bag of impossible chicken nuggets. Oh, yeah. I was scarfing those by the dozen. I, I stopped <laughs> because I realized like, you know, I was I was going to probably die if I ate any more impossible nuggets. <laughs> but they're, they're, they look and taste and have the same texture as chicken nuggets. And you just di- you dip them in a mix of like soy sauce and sriracha. And man, that is a um, that is a really unhealthy uh, and satisfying lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Enough sodium, yeah, and it's delicious. Yeah. Well, yeah. what do you? I'm interested to get your thoughts. What do you think about lab-grown meat? You know, I'm intrigued by it. <laughs> I mean, I would definitely eat a steak that was grown in a dish, <laughs> because <laughs> just just to say I'd done it. You know, when I was just because like when I was in Iceland on a car junk at one time, I they they, they, they we got a, a feast and it included whale and horse. I'm like. Okay, one time, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I and I would um, I would do the same with uh, lab, I would eat lab grown meat. You know, I don't know, I don't know if I'd make a habit of it, but it certainly would. Um, if you if you want to eat meat, that's a way to do it without having to murder an animal. There you, you go, know? exactly. And I think the world needs more adventurous eaters like yourself. I think we'd be a lot further along. Absolutely, I would eat a lab grown reindeer or whatever they eat in Iceland for sure. I need lab grown anything. Yeah. I need a lab. I need <laughs> lab grown avocado. I need lab grown popcorn. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you don't really need to do that. Uh, yeah. So I, but yeah, but yeah, lab grown meat is good. I I, I would also like um like a, like a futuristic. Uh, tool where you could just like press a button and, and it would 3D print, you know, and, and your food would just materialize. Kind of like Star Trek, you know? Like Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. It's coming. It's, I, well, I, I hope I live, to, I hope <laughs> I live long enough to eat it, la, eat lab grown meat at a restaurant where there are no children. <laughs> That's my goal. So I, I would say this, like, here's my, here's my book and film globe. Uh, you are what you eat dietary uh, prescription. Fruits, a lot of fruits and vegetables uh, grown as close to locally as to where you live as possible. Cook at home as much as you can. And I would say 80%, only 80% popcorn in your diet. <laughs> Neil Pollock, registered dietitian. Yeah, I have a big bowl of popcorn every day. And I, I have my, my, my blood pressure is, is, is not too bad. All right. This has been the Book and Film Globe uh, Dietary uh, Advice segment. You Are What You Eat is um, is on Netflix. Isn't there also a book? Uh, Regina, my wife, is reading some book. There's a book on our coffee table called How Not to Die. Yeah, that's by one of the contributors, Dr. Michael Greger. Yeah, he's uh, he's... Yeah, he's one of the talking heads on a lot of these vegan uh, documentaries, but he's he's an interesting guy. Yeah. So How Not to Die, You Are What You Eat. My recommendation for How Not to Die is don't drive uh, in Texas and also, um, don't, don't eat a lot of popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget, vodka is vegan. Yeah. And uh, so is yoga. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Rachel Llewellyn, we'll talk to you soon. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Rachel Llewellyn. She is what she eats. I am Neil Pollock. I am what I eat. And You Are What You Eat is now on Netflix. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about the Sundance Film Festival. Some of those movies will be coming 
to theaters near you in the next year, and to Sarah Stewart for talking to me about the Barbie Oscar controversy, which will continue to be controversial until the next controversy erupts on Twitter. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV, and we will never snub you, not for one minute. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading the site. I will talk to you soon. Original Production.